Yeah. The craziest thing, though, honestly, man, you you get to see with a laser, laser clear focus, crystal clear focus, how the criminal justice system over incarcerates and more harshly incarcerates black people. Because yeah. I can, I, I remember just going. It's like being on the HBCU campus, bro. You don't really see white people like that. Part of the wildness of for real, the first shock, I was like, "Yo, this joint, it's really." dominant it's beautiful it's absolutely gorgeous this view yeah and then also we're in a maximum security prison and also um i know that we're not getting arrested at these same rates right i know we're not getting charged at these same rates but that so then like this the, the uh, over incarceration of black men was that was a shock to me yeah i would have thought it was going to be more more even again it, it what it, it just felt like it just felt so dominating that i remember just being depressed my first couple of weeks being there like yo this is this is really bizarre Yo, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to Four in the Morning. That voice that you just heard is my friend uh, Jordan Rice. Jordan is uh, a lawyer from a family of lawyers. Literally everybody in his family is either a lawyer or a judge. And years ago, uh, after spending time in a maximum security prison and practicing law in the state of New York, uh, Jordan felt the urge or calling to shift gears and uh, pastor in New York, not as an attempt to get away from working for justice, but as a way to embody his hope in such a way that he helps other people to catch it. Um, and that's one thing that I love about Jordan and you're going to love as you get a chance just to hear more about his story and his journey uh, is that after all he's seen and all he's been through, he's got this unwavering hope and optimism, right? And it's one of the things that Dr. King's kids said about him. I think it was Bernice um, or his son. One thing that they said was the thing that floored them the most about him was after he had seen all that he saw, he still had this sense of hope that nobody could shake from him. Um, and that's what I've seen in Jordan. Every time I talk to him, I learn something new about him. And um, if you've been with him any length of time or you know any bit of his story, not only has he seen a bunch of stuff in law, but personally in his own life, um, he's a widower who has remarried a former widower. And you just, uh, yeah, just take a step back and just think about just the complexities of life and the highs and lows. And he's seen so many of them, but he keeps pushing forward. He's somebody that inspires me uh, to hope. So uh, he's become my favorite social media follow. He's balanced. He's spicy when he needs to be. He's smart. He's insightful. Um, and I'm excited about getting a chance to introduce him to you. So that's all I've got. I'm going to let him speak for himself. And I just want y'all to sit back and to be reminded of the fact that y'all hope comes to us in the most unlikely places. None of us finds hope. You don't find hope. Hope finds you. It's Amazon primed to your front doorstep. It's brought at times through people in places that you would never expect. But if you look out for it, uh, it'll find you. So yeah, uh, enjoy this convo I have with uh, Jordan. 
So I grew up the son of two lawyers. Um, my dad and my mother, they actually met in an incredibly cheesy story on the first day of law school <laughs> at the University of Buffalo. Because. And um, my mother's a lefty and my dad went all around campus to find a left-hand desk and he put the left-hand desk next to his seat. For real? It's kind of smooth. Yeah. That's dope. <laughs> it is dope. So she had nowhere else to sit. And then, you know, the rest is history from there. So growing up, you know, me and my older brother, you know, the way we actually handled family disputes was in many lawsuits. So my mother would be like, yo, you have you have 10, 10 minutes to present your case. <laughs> and when I turned about 16, my mother, she actually became a judge, a part-time judge. And um, so law was in my blood. Yeah. And I went to, by the time I got to college, I, you know, was a political science major. And there's really not too many things you can do with political science majors. Right. Um, and uh, so after, after college, I kind of didn't have a, a lot of options besides law school. And um, my, I was never forced to go to law school, but it was always a very easy and convenient path. So right. went to law school. My older brother, he was actually there already. He was in his third year. I was in my first year. And uh, yeah, so finished that in 2006 and then got out and started working in family law, particularly juvenile delinquency yeah. uh, defense work. So literally everybody in your family is a lawyer. Yep. And uh, my dad, my dad and I are the only ones who aren't judges. My older brother now is a judge and my mother was a judge. She just retired uh, in January. So yeah, it's in the blood, man. It's, That's it's hard to get away from that. I. So, all right, so you uh, you get done with law school, you start to practice family law. This is what? Yeah, you said back in back in 06? Back in 06, yeah. All right, yeah, um, so how is, old are you? Are we the same age? Um, I'm 38 now, I was 24. Okay, got you. We're getting, getting out of law school. Right. And yeah, I mean, by the time I got admitted, I think I had just turned 25, which is wild, man. <laughs> you gave the 20, a 25-year-old the keys to your future. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it's... I was passionate and I knew a lot. I knew in a lot of ways, I didn't want my age or me being younger to be any reason for anybody to think that I wasn't going to be more prepared. So I was showing up to court ready. Like no way you're going to say that, you know, this guy, this young kid doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, I still had a lot of learning to do, but you know, I definitely took that as a chip on my shoulder to prove that I, I knew what I was doing in the courtroom. Yeah. So as you came up, did you see that kind of stuff a whole lot? Yeah. I mean, so, Technically, whenever you whenever you have like a public defender, it really is a roll of the dice. Yeah. Some of the best some of the best attorneys I have ever met yeah. are public defenders. Yeah. I mean, they they will wax the floor <laughs> right. with with anybody. For real. And then some of them some of them they show up. You know what I mean? Their their shoes ain't shine. Damn. They you know they they got some dusty khakis on, and those dudes are just collecting that collecting that check. Damn. And part of it is uh, you you have so many cases. Yeah. Um, and a lot, a lot of times people, they're just struggling to make ends meet that you 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 get paid off of volume. So you really don't have that much time to spend on each specific case. Yeah. So some of the you know, it, it's kind of a crapshoot. You know, generally speaking, whenever you have a retained attorney that you pay out of pocket for, you know that they're going to dedicate the time. So, I mean, in, in some ways you can get better counsel by getting retained. But a lot of times, you know, some of my best work was done as a public a public defender for kids or a public defender for people. So, dang. Crazy. You roll a dice. Yeah. So you're done. You're 25 years old. And what's the next step? Uh, the next step is I'm actually in seminary at night, practicing during the daytime. And this was wild, B. I'm not even, at this point, I don't even remember how I did <laughs> right. this. Yeah. So I'm 25 years old. I don't drink coffee. Right. I, 
I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working 40, 50 hours a week. I'm taking 15 credits at night. Yeah. And I'm like, yo, what was I doing? <laughs> right. I, so, and I just, I just had energy. Yeah. I, that's wild. I, so yeah. Wh- so why? So if you were on the pathway right now, like, all right, law, my whole family, lawyers, judges, I see the problems. I'm getting ready to do this. Why are you taking seminary classes at night? Yeah, man. I've always had this suspicion yeah. that I that I wasn't going to finish being a lawyer. Uh-huh. So like my first day, my first day of law school, I'll never forget talking to all these people who were so passionate about law. Yeah. And I was almost ashamed like, oh man, oh, it's cool, it. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. But I don't have that. Yeah. And we would go out, we would go out playing pool and you know, this is in the middle of the semester and people talking about law concepts. And I'm like, bro, is this going to be on the test? Yeah. Why are we why <laughs> are we talking about this? And uh, but they just loved it, man. They loved law. They loved yeah. the study of it, the theory of it. They just loved to talk about it. Yeah. And I would always just feel like, man, I don't know that I have that. Yeah. I have a passion, but it definitely is not that. And I, I can't do this till I'm 65. Right. So I started to have that, that sneaking suspicion made me start to entertain what other options I could do long term yeah. that would be able to really accomplish some of the things that I felt I was called to do in life, yeah. but also not narrow me in too much. I figured another uh. degree. While the student loans might you might pile up a little bit, um, it, it definitely won't close doors for me. How did you get connected with your internship, or your time at Sing Sing? Like, where did that? Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. So in seminary, you had to do a supervised ministry thing, and I didn't want to work at a church. I had some bad situations in dealing with churches, and you know, I was twenty something years old. I, I knew the, I knew all the answers to everything, so I didn't need to. I didn't need to get <laughs> right, that church. Right. <laughs> So I said, you know what, instead of doing mine at a church or some ministry, I'm going to I'm going to do mine in prison. And I reached out to a chaplain at Sing Sing because it's the closest maximum security prison to New York City. So everybody wants to be at Sing Sing. Everybody who's doing a max, who's at a max, wants to be at Sing Sing because you could have visitors left and right because they can get there in 45 minutes instead of eight hours. Right. So 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 I went to so I reached out to a chaplain who was very eager to have me. I should have taken that as a sign that it was going to be rough. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> based on how quickly ready. he took me up, <laughs> based on how quickly he took it, took me up on that offer, and um, so a year, for a year I did twenty hours a week uh, working at Sing Sing, and I actually extended that for another year just to kind of do probably a 10, ten hours a week uh, just for uh, free work to just to be there with the brothers there uh, at the prison, and that was wild, bro. say wild and I've got things in my own life that I've seen that are wild right yeah I don't think I don't think wild captures it for me so you've got to like paint a picture right I think yeah yeah wild like my daughter jumps off of the couch and I'm like yo sweetheart that's wild right so yeah yeah, now you gotta paint (laughs) paint a picture yeah, so I mean, so part of, part of it is also the stereotypes of what you go into it thinking, right? So right. all I knew about prison was Oz, right. HBO. <laughs> right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? So I remember the first day I get there and, you know, I'm thinking like, well, where do we, you know, what's the visitor path to get to the chapel? Yeah. Because I see like, I see the general population <laughs> right. and I know I'm not walking through that. So how do I get to the chapel? <laughs> right. And they were like, nah, this is, this is the way. So I'm like, oh, oh, okay. So we just in the building. Right. We just loose. 
Damn. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, okay. So, um, and it's all love, man. Yeah. Like, first, for real, for real, it was, it was all love. Right. But the first day I was there, there was like, you know, whistles going, people running, and like, you know, it got live. And there was like a puddle of blood. Somebody just got beat up. And it was just like, you know, you break it up for like two seconds. And then three seconds later, it's like back to normal. Dang. Yeah, bro. So, I mean, that was, that was wild. Yeah. The craziest thing, though, honestly, man, you, you get to see with a laser, laser clear focus, crystal clear focus, how the criminal justice system over incarcerates and more harshly incarcerates black people. Because yeah. I, can, I, I remember just going, it's like being on the HBCU campus, bro. You don't really see white people like that. I mean, so it was just so many black men in there um, that there's so many dynamics going on. So you're, you're in Austin, it's all basically all white town. Their, their economy is supported. And um, really the focus of their economy is this prison, the prison. that is there. That's... And then there's this, there's this, I mean, you're on, and you're on the Hudson River in New York yeah. with some of the most beautiful sunsets in America. And you're standing in a maximum security prison and so you, so part of the wildness of for real, the first shock, I was like, yo, this joint, it's really beautiful, dominant. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. This view. Yeah. And then also we're in a maximum security prison. And also, um, I know that we're not getting arrested at these same rates. Right. I know we're not getting charged at these same rates, but then, so then like this, the, the uh, over incarceration of black men was, that was a shock to me. Yeah. I would thought it was going to be more, more even again, it, 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 it just felt like. It just felt so dominating that I remember just being depressed my first couple of weeks being there. Like, yo, this is this is really bizarre. Oh, so what what you're saying is like, yo, I'm a lawyer. I've been in the courts. I've seen black people yes. and white people yes. coming to the courts for for the same crime. Yes. But now I go to the maximum yes. security prison and I don't see yeah. that the proportions are way different. Dang. And the University of Michigan did a study a couple of years ago, I think in twenty fourteen or twenty sixteen, that just talked about for the same crimes, for the same crimes committed, um, and they did a thorough investigation. If you reduce, if you remove every other factor with, except for race, black people are charged and prosecuted more harshly than their white counterparts. And um, I, I saw that firsthand. And um, so yeah, that, that was that was pretty bizarre, man, and um, and depressing. But also, I mean, the way that they lay out a prison is a maze. It's meant to disorient you. Mm. So what? So. One of the ways that you st you can stifle and prevent revolts or um, you know out outbreaks is that you the actual construction of a prison disorients you. So the longer you're there, the more disoriented you get. Damn. There's no such thing as like walking from here to there. Right. Like from, to walk from A to B, you got to go through J and P and T just to get to B. Damn. So like you're like, and I got a bad sense of direction anyway. <laughs> so I'm like always lost. Even I was just trying to go like a hundred yards, and it takes you it takes you twenty minutes sometimes to get a hundred yards because you have to go through all these different ways, and that's the way they part of they part of the way that they manage uh, the people in prison. So that was that was pretty wild. And then I saw a lot of stuff, man. Like there was there was one night during Bible study that there was a a riot, and I was in there till two in the morning because they somebody got stabbed right outside the chapel, and I'm you were you're reminded that you're in a maximum security prison. Dang, was there? ever a time in the midst of it that you were like, yo, man, if I get out tonight, I'm not, I'm, I'm never coming back. I thought about it that one night. Yeah. Mm. You know, for real, I thought about it that one night because it was just too close. Yeah. But it was, there's actually one other night. So, I mean, I've seen some amazing, amazing 
things happen. And I actually have relationships still with some of the brothers that were inside from from back then. Yeah. And, you know, dudes, dudes are out now. They're doing great. You know, phenomenal. I had a lot of transitions, even mentally to say they're, they're not prisoners. They're people in prison. That, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The same things, the same things you see on the outside, you see on the inside. However, there were some things that crazy things that happened. You know, when I was there, um, the chaplain told me never, ever accept anything from anybody. Don't ever accept anything from anybody. And one day there was a dude that had been coming to Bible study that every single day, I mean, every, every week he was my, he was my assistant setting up yeah. and sitting in the front row of Bible studies, answering questions, asking good questions, coming with homework. And then one day, about a month or two after we started, he said, yo, um, can you call my aunt for me and let her know that I'm doing really well? You know, they took away our privileges for phone rights because of this riot that happened, but she has cancer and I'm really afraid that she's going to, she's going to die without hearing how well I'm doing. And I was like very sympathetic, like, yo, all right, yeah, give me the number. And that day happened to be the day that I was meeting with my advisor after, after I I got out instead of before, because normally we meet before I went in. Yeah. And then he, he just asked me, Hey, did anybody give you anything? And I said, well, actually today, so-and-so actually gave me this piece of paper. And he says, give it to me right now. And he says, that guy's on going up for, he has, he has pending trials and he's very likely asking you to call a witness for him to, to do witness tampering. Dang. Yes. Sheesh. The dude got, the dude was smooth, bro. <laughs> Dang. He was smooth. That's wild. And then what, and then that kind of freaked me out a little bit. And I, yeah. I was afraid what would happen if I went back in and he's like, yo, did you call my aunt? And you were like, and, nah, man. Nah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, what? Exactly. So I never heard from him again. Oh, he never really? showed back up. Really? Yeah. Dang. He just disappeared. But that was, that was an outlier experience. Right. Yeah. You know, really, for the most part, you got to see really... You got to see how many people that pri- that school to prison pipeline. Yeah, that is real, bro. Mm. One third of people in prison cannot read the word CAT. They cannot read anything. They are Ill- illiterate. What? And over two thirds of people in prison have had some time in foster care. It, so I. So this blowing my mind. So so what do they do when it comes to like? Cause they're not minors, so there's nobody that's gonna sign anything for them. As they have to like, yeah, sign things, affidavits, right. things like. What do they do? Put do an they? X down. Oh, and, yeah, put an X down. And they literally just sit there and say, "Yo, tell me what this says, so that I could." Yep. Can cannot read a word. And yes, yeah, it's, it's sad because you realize. What alternative do you have? Yeah. Even if you get out, what's the next? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. How are you going to fill out an application at FedEx? Even if they would hire you. Dang. So, so I think, yeah, my biggest question for you then, it was, what, like, how did... Like, how did you, how did you see that and experience that on a Friday, Mm. go home for a weekend and then on Monday Mm. say, all right, man, I got to go back in. Like, yeah, I mean, I was seeing it on both ends, you know? So like Monday morning I'd be in court and I'd see one of my kids 
you know, who's 14 being brought in in shackles because they, you know, that's the way they decided to transport even teenagers. And, you know, I would see them thinking of this as like a rites of passage. So they're coming out in shackles, waving to their boys, like it's cool that they got locked up. And then I'm like, yo, you think it's cool? You don't want that. All right. Trust me, you don't want that. I've seen, I've seen some super wild things that would probably get you a podcast taken off of, you know, <laughs> right. 18, say for 18 and under, right. particularly even as like, you know, people who were recently sexually assaulted in, in, in the facility. Um, and it's real and it's not the place that you want to be. So Monday morning I'm in court with a 13 year old who thinks it's cool. Like he just got locked up and thinks this is a rite of passage. Mm. And then Tuesday night I'm going to do, a, do my, 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 you know, my chaplaincy work. So, I mean, it was, to be honest, I feel like a lot of times when you're, when you're processing something, when you're grieving something, yeah. you don't even, you don't even know what's happening right. yet. You know what I mean? Like you can't even, pro- it's like you're drinking out of a fire hose, man. It took me uh, probably a couple of years after Afterwards. to think like, man, yeah, that was wild. Like that was really, that was really wild. Yeah. That was really sad. Yeah. I, so yeah. yeah, 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 and I mean, I'm I'm sure you could go for days with this. <laughs> the question that that I have is, um, on your last day there, mm. when you turned in your badge and you just mm-hmm. knew, like, all right, this is my last day, my my time's up. Mm-hmm. If you could backtrack, like, what what was the prevailing thought and sentiment for you last day there? Mm, that's real. I think it was one, I have been transformed in some ways mm. by a mentor that I actually had in there. Not my not my advisor, but a mentor who was leading a Bible study and doing some things. Yeah. He actually really restored my faith in Christian community. I because I I'd lost it. I had seen so much corruption in the church. Hold on. All right, that wait. it was seen. Yeah. All right, wait, wait, wait. All right. <laughs> okay, so so it's uh my faith in community. Or Jordan yeah, Rice's is, faith in community was done. crumbled, done, and being in a maximum security prison, yes, was the place where that was restored. Yes, my mentor, he passed away a couple of years ago, brother Al. He had been there for twenty years. Mm. Every single Thursday night, he would miss one or two Thursdays a year one of those Thursdays being Thanksgiving because they wouldn't let him in the building. And he was just, he just loved people, man. He was faithful. He was consistent. He was, he was just there. He was patient with people. And I was like, yo, if at the end of my days, if I can give myself to something and people will look at me and say, this dude Jordan just, yo, he loved me. Yeah, he didn't, he he ain't all answers. He didn't have everything figured out, but he was a real dude. He was a real one. That that just that rebuilt me because I got to see what it looks like to be someone who is just consistent. They're not in it for the for the glitz and the glamour. They're not in it for accolades. He was just in it because he loved people and he loved God, and it was it was evident. So that that made me feel like well, maybe ministry is something that I could do. That's crazy. That is crazy. It's 
So if you had to quantify, right, or give her like, you know, how many times did you think of quitting? So I've played ball my whole life. I've wanted to quit at least a thousand times, right? There's been at least a thousand times that I'm like, this is done, man. I can't do this no more, man. I'm turning in my dream. Yep. Yeah. Um, how many times in the process did you feel like, yeah, I can't do this. I literally cannot do this anymore. Or, mm. or did you ever feel like that? Yeah, I mean, I still, I feel like I question everything I'm doing all the time, you okay. know, in terms of whether or not this is what I'm supposed to be given my time to. I never had any moments where I was just like, that's it. I can't, I can't do it. Mm. Um, not doing, I mean, practicing law, I, I, I was good at it. Yeah. And it was the family thing. So it was, it wasn't a shock to me. I, I went into it with clear eyes a little bit. I, I felt many a times that this is probably not the best thing for me because I'm dealing with kids one-on-one -on -one and there's, there's a whole system yeah. that is like dominating them. And yo, so I got, I got this dude off. Okay. He's going right back to the same terrible system that got that sent him in the first place. So I, I felt a lot of dissatisfaction just with how little I was contributing with so much effort. And I felt like, yo, I got to do something. I have to pivot to something that's going to give me more bang for the buck in terms of being able to challenge things in a broader way and to be able to, to galvanize more people around oh. something instead of just, I worked with this one client and I did this one thing in this one courtroom. I talked to this one judge. Like I, I need something, I need a bigger platform than that. Cause that is a lot of effort with very, very little results. Oh, uh, so, so your thing was you felt like, nah, this is good, but it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like melt this glacier with a hairdryer. And it's just exactly. like, ah, man, I mean, I know yeah. like there's good that's being done, but it ain't. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. Mm. So definitely, yeah, wanting to see that. And, you know, I've also, and then still feeling like I had this sneaking suspicion that I was supposed to be doing something else. Right. And I had that for years. You know, when I was in college, I became a Christian and I, I immediately started a Bible study, which is a terrible idea right. to have someone who's, you know, who, <laughs> I, I don't think I completed a book of the Bible yet. <laughs> right. And I'm teaching, I'm teaching a Bible study. Yeah. The teaching was terrible. Yeah. The delivery was terrible. But all the dudes I used to smoke weed with, I'd be like, yo, just come through, pull up to Bible study. <laughs> right, right. And they'd be like, yo, that's what's up. Who's teaching it? I'm like, me. And they're like, no, 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 no. Who's teaching? <laughs> Who's teaching it? And I was like, me. And they were like, all right, if you're teaching it, I'll go. Yeah. And that was kind of how I got interested in, in ministry. Yeah. I didn't even know what, what ministry was, but I figured like, yo, if this is what it is, me connecting with my friends and telling them about something that changed my life, then I'll do that. Mm. So since that point in college, I started to feel like, well, maybe I'm supposed to be helping other people find God, yeah. whatever that looks like. You know, and, that, and that not everybody's journey is the exact same way, but right. maybe I'm supposed to be helping people find Jesus or something like that. Right. Now, now, when you did that, um, so I mean, on one hand, I hear you say, all right, I was a lawyer, I would work with these one kids, and it felt like I'm trying to melt glaciers with a hairdryer. It kind of felt like yep. this solo effort. But then with uh, when you help people find God, it seemed like, you know, you didn't just help them out of a bad time, but it was, there was something like, ah, but once they found God, now they were part of this, 
community and there was a crew and there was a team and now we all could go and do the same thing right yeah yep yeah so that's exactly it it was also like well what kind of community could be built around right around justice Mm. so now it's not just me doing 10 things there's doctors there's lawyers right right right. delivery people there's nurses there's teachers there's everybody in this one family of people that are coming together to say like yo we we are here thank god for all that he's done for us but we are here to make a difference in this world uh right. to, to not just allow things to happen to us but we're here to to make some noise yeah, and get into some good trouble like my brother rest in peace john lewis yeah man yo yo that's that's so good like i've um uh me and my wife uh adopted three years ago so we've been you know passionate about adoption and it's just like what you you said. I mean, you get into a problem and and you see, yo, this is bigger than I thought that it was. And I think Way there's bigger. three responses that folks can get or have, right? One is this problem is so big and I can't solve it by myself. I think I'm just going to bow out and give up. I can't, right? So that's one. Yeah. Or you have folks that says, yo, this this thing is so big. I can't solve it by myself, uh, but at least I can take my hairdryer and melt my part of the ice cap, which that's better than the first in that mm-hmm. there's good being done, but it's still not solving the problem. And then there's this third, and that's what I hear you say, where it's like, oh, no, 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 look, it's so big and I can't solve it. I don't need to quit. I don't need to just do my part. Uh, but I need to change what my part is. And my part is using my platform to recruit a bunch of people to do their parts. And now I come back at this problem with a community of folks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my wife, she always clowns me because yeah. I was like, I was always super nervous about starting a church because, yeah. you know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes into, into that and leaving a pretty great law, law career. I was making a good amount of money. <laughs> right, and right. I was good. I was good at it. Yeah. Um, but she would always say, like, Jordan, this, you gather people. This yeah. is what you do. Yeah. Mm. And I remember being in college and, again, no training, no nothing. Right. I would have 50, 60 people, yeah. 50, 60 dudes in Bible study. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rooms would be packed. Dudes wouldn't even have chairs. That's Sit on the floor yeah. to hear terrible teaching. <laughs> That's it. So, and, and some people, my wife, she'll say, like, Jordan, you know, you're, you've always been a phenomenal gatherer. You can gather people around anything. Yeah. You might not. No, you might not know what to do, or you don't know what to do once you get them there. But <laughs> you can get them in a room, I and you can feel. turn it over to somebody else who can take them. I feel <laughs> so yeah. So so when when did that realization hit you, and you felt like I, yo, there's a problem that needs to be solved. Um, I think the better way for me to go about solving that problem is starting a church. When did that? Yeah. When was that like clear? I mean, that happened incrementally. So, I mean, I think okay. there's two train tracks, you know, one is a passion to really truly see like, man, Jesus changed my life. And I, I think it's, it's the best thing. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. Right. And I think good news is good news is just meant to be shared. Right. Yeah. So the day I got, the day I got Hamilton tickets, I started texting everybody to let them know that, you know, I was going to go see <laughs> Hamilton. No, if, right, you, right. if I get new sneakers, I want to floss and stunt and show people that I just got these new kicks because right. good news is meant to be shared, whatever it is. Yeah. So I think there's a piece of me that always felt that Jesus is and was good news. And um, I wanted to share that. Yeah. But there's also a piece of me that d- over the years has become increasingly just pissed off, yeah. angry, 
mm. um, overwhelmed. Yeah. And I feel like for me, Mike Brown, seeing yeah. his lifeless body on the on the concrete, on that pavement, uncovered for hours. Yeah. That was an experience for me that I was like, I'm never going back from this point. Right. Mm. I'm never going back from this point. And to hear the national conversation about this thug, this guy, that right. they just left. Man, they wouldn't even treat a cat like that. Right. Mm. You wouldn't treat a deer like that. Damn. You have highway services that will pick up a deer faster than you pick up a black man on the street. Mm. So that was a that was a moment I said, whatever we do, yeah, is gonna is gonna get at this. Yeah. And really uh. I, I had a reawakening of faith even to see how much God cares about justice. Right. Uh, it's not just Jordan and Jordan's mission. This right. is yo, this this is part of God's mission to see people restored and renewed and for justice to happen. And that so then to rally people around that, anybody who was trying to get down with that, yo, let's get it. That's real. Oh, that's great. And to also feel like, to be honest, man, my biggest contribution, you know, if I teach a good sermon and people start shaking their head and like, oh, yo, that was dope when you said this, that, and the third. All right. Right. But what have we done? Yeah. So talk to me about what life looks like for you now. Uh, the conversations progressed since 2014. Well, oh, yeah. the participants in the conversation yeah. have progressed since 2014. So it seems like there's an increasingly diverse audience that's starting to say, hey, maybe uh, let's not spend so much time talking about unity. Let's talk about the obstacles that actually stand in the way of it. So... Yep. What does that look like now? I mean, uh, one of the things that I admire about you and why I constantly, you know, look to you, listen to you, learn from you is I just feel like as far as a lot of these issues are concerned, I just feel like providentially, man, you just have, you know, such a head start from your background to the experiences that God has brought you through. So, yeah, I mean, from your standpoint, what's next or what's now how are y'all uh as a community as a church as a family yeah mm. really trying to transfer this so, hope yeah man this is one of the things that i realized i wish i knew this 15 years ago yeah i i always wanted to go system big you right. know big picture let's let's get in front of the supreme court let's do this yeah. let's do that and i was really my order was really wrong and what yeah. i'm seeing now that's is extremely encouraging is people are starting with themselves. Yeah. So we need a reckoning. We need a reckoning mm. to how racist thoughts, notions, and ideas have been nurtured in us mm. since the very moment we came out of this, out of the womb. Yeah. And I'm starting to see people now, even in New York, five years ago, the conversation was them, 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 them. Yeah. Now the conversation is, yo, it's me. Right. Yo, yo, and these and nice friend yes um and when you say us you're not just saying white people right no yeah i'm saying everybody right i mean because we grew up bro i grew up the only thing i knew about africa being taught in school was that people were starving and there were flies coming yeah. out of people's mouths mm. yeah that's what i was taught about africa yeah yeah and me and my boys we were, i know you got roasted by a lot there was a divide even in the black community in the african oh, yeah. community we used to roast dudes, African booty, booty scratchers, scratcher, right? Yeah. Yep. 
Now and everybody want to be from Wakanda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yo, for real. Yeah. I mean, but we—I was a victim, bro, and I and I ingested it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whole, I ingested it intentionally, also. Yeah. But so there's a there's a reckoning. There's there's colorism and the, there's so much colorism in the black community. Right. Uh, that you know where light is more preferred, right? Particularly for women, at least in, in many cases. And you're weak if you're light skinned, if you're a man. Right. And there's just so many, so many racist no- notions and thoughts and ideas yeah. that we've inherited. And now people are starting to say, we it's time to take a look in the mirror. Right. And of course, um, my white brothers and sisters, there's a lot of reckoning that they need to 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 have as well. Absolutely. And accounting. Right. So Brian Stevenson always talks about we need an honest accounting of where we have been and where we are. Right. If we're gonna do anything going forward. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people are starting to have that conversation. Mm personally. So one thing I was thinking about, you know, my mother-in-law is Jamaican, born and raised in Jamaica, and she's been in America longer than she's been in Jamaica. Mm. But she's to this day has the thickest Jamaican accent, uh, you know, like she's fresh off the island. Yes, my dad too. And what is that? Yeah. So she was, she was raised in the culture that spoke a certain way. Yeah. And even though she's been in proximity to a different culture, it still hasn't undone Mm. what was formed in her. Right. Mm. The same thing is true with racism. We were brought up in a culture that just the air, the culture was so was and is so racist right. that just by being in proximity to something new yeah. or good or having a black friend or whatever, whatever, that's not going to undo it. Right. You need to be intentionally undo the ways that you were formed, right. the notions and the ideas. And I feel like right now people are starting to be more willing to instead of pointing the finger out, right. which necessary needs to happen, also taking some good introspective looks at themselves and say. Well, how was how were and are these racist notions and ideas thought thoughts formed in me as well? Because it's impossible to be born and raised in Jamaica and not have a Jamaican accent. Right. It's right. impossible. I've never met one person. <laughs> right, right, right. I've never met one person from Jamaica who talks like they're from Seattle. Right, 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 right. And vice versa. Yeah. So how is it that you were raised in this in just where racism is so pervasive and it doesn't touch you at all? Right. Mm. It's not volitional. It happens to us. Right. And what's most encouraging now is that people are starting with themselves. They're taking small steps to really unearth painful and deep things in, in themselves. And then those conversations are going to their immediate circles. Yeah. And then from there, we can get to society at large. But start with you. Start yeah. with you. Start with you. And then get to your inner circle. Uh, and then let's talk about the big shift we're going to see yeah. at society at large, but definitely not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. What have you found to be the biggest help for? Um, so, I mean, not just convincing people to look at themselves, because I do think we yeah. spend so much time trying to convince people there's a problem that I don't think we have mm. the energy to instruct people that, are, mm. that have said, yo, all right, I get it. Uh, help me understand what to do. And so I've just found myself in this place now where I'm saying, yo, I've spent, you know, a long time trying to convince and now uh, I think I want to give more time to restoration or to people that mm. are already yep. convinced but still need to be moved yep. along. So with people that are already convinced, uh, I mean, is yep. there just a helpful paradigm yep. that you're like, I right, yo, if you're already here, starting here, these are the these are ways that I think we can move forward. One, I think we need a we need a really great framework to understand shame and how shame mm. paralyzes us because unless people have a, a way to deal with their shame, they're not going to really go deep. Right. Mm. Shame is like, shame is like a boil that just stops you from touching something. Uh. 
and you, you'll just do anything you can to not touch it. Mm. And unless, and unless people have a good way to deal with shame, um, in the Christian tradition, certainly there's a number of resources right. that allow, allow Christians to deal with shame and understand that you are not what you do. Mm. So even the most regrettable things that you've done, those are terrible for sure. The thoughts that you've had, those are terrible for sure. However, that is not you. Yeah, they're not the core and of your way in identity. Christian, yeah, that's not, the, that's not the core of your identity. Mm. You are a child of God. Yeah. Um, Brene Brown has a lot of great stuff on shame, mm. um, on just how it paralyzes us. So one, you have to, we have to find a great way to deal with shame. And two, did, have you ever heard of the genogram? Nah. So the genogram, it's like this emotionally healthy. Yo, yo, I have. Toward, All right. Yo, yo, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's a way that you trace back. It's a way that you trace back how you have been formed in your family lineage. Right. So starting with your grandparents to ask those questions, what were the ways that your grandparents consciously and subconsciously dealt with the topic of race? Mm. Just what were the ways? What were the things you heard them say if you were in contact with them? Right. What were the things that you heard your parents say about your their, their parents, yeah. about how they dealt with race explicitly and implicitly? Yeah. And what were the ways that your community, the people you were born and raised, what were the explicit and implicit messages that you heard from your community, your church, your school, your yeah. friends, whatever? What were the explicit and implicit messages you heard about race growing up? Mm. Uh, and then same thing with your parents. So, you know, for me, um, you know, my parents, for example, would speak very freely and pejoratively about Chinese people. Right. Um, and just would say, it, my, you know, my dad doesn't eat Chinese food because he heard this old anecdote that, you know, they eat, they cooking dogs right. in the kitchen yeah. you know, or cats in the kitchen. And, you know, just freely expressing, spewing this stuff all the time because of whatever reason that he believed, you know, whatever. And it's impossible for me to say that my my entire life, I was born and raised uh, around that and heard that over and over and over again. But it never shaped me. You know, my dad's a nice guy and it, and it didn't do anything to me. It didn't touch me. It didn't shape me at all. Yeah. That I would just be lying to myself. Right. And certainly with um, and black people for the way that we internalize ourselves, right? So that you know, um, what does it mean to have white validation for black endeavors? Mm. Does that make it better? So if you're a comedian and you have a black audience, you're good. If you're a comedian, you got a white audience. Yo, you made it, my G. Right, right. So what does that do to the black soul that needs white validation to accomplish their dreams? Yeah. Mm. So all of these diff different things to ask these questions, well, how did my dinner table deal with race explicitly and implicitly from when I was four? And then to ask those questions and to really process that generationally. And I think that takes people as a really helpful tool. Yeah. And I can give you some stuff um, on, on that. That could be helpful as well. It's excellent, man. Yeah. Fan, this was excellent. Uh, uh, this was a great part one, because there's a lot more that we got to yeah, talk through as we peel back the layers yeah, of man. Jordan Rice. Yeah. Final thoughts, things that you were like, yo, dying to say. It's like, ah, oh, man, I had this joint. I really wanted to get it out, but I didn't. Yeah, find a space. Uh, I would just say for everybody, one of the things that I found to be very difficult for me to do is to be gracious to myself. Mm. I've never been here in this moment before, right. and I should not. I shouldn't beat myself up for not knowing the best ways forward. And I'm gonna make mistakes. The goal in life is to stumble forward yeah. and to be gracious to yourself and to fight, to fight, to be gracious to yourself, to take that next step forward, even if it's uh, scary or painful, and just to trust that God got you along the way as you move in in, in good steps. Wow, that's dope. Yo, Jordan, thank you, brother. Man, it yeah, was man, an honor. Yeah, man, thanks for having me, bro. Bye.